Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible with you, I would love for you to open it to Ezra chapter 1. Um, you'll find Ezra in the Old Testament. Um, so one of the questions I've been asking, usually at the end of the message time over the past month or so, is who cares? Why should, why should we care about any of these things that we have been talking about? And today, I wanted to actually ask it at the beginning of our time. I wonder if you've asked that question over, over the last month, like why, as we hear these stories, why should these matter to our lives? In fact, on Thursday night in our small group, someone actually asked a daring question. She said, so why is this book in the Bible? Maybe you've thought to ask that question before. Why is this book in God's Word? I want you to think back to the last several weeks. We've talked about Jeremiah, the prophet, who tells the people how they are to act when they are taken into captivity in Babylon. Well, that's not our reality, right? We are not the prophet Jeremiah speaking to people who are going into exile. And then we talked about Daniel, who is one of the people who was taken away to Babylon. He was a, he was a um, dream interpreter, and maybe you say, well, I'm not a dream interpreter, so what, what has Daniel to do with me? And then last week we talked about Esther. And actually there's only one person who's connected to Westway Christian Church who has any concept of what it's like to win a beauty contest. And she did not go on to become the queen of Babylon. So what does Esther have to do with us? And if these are your thoughts and this is the tension that you're feeling... What I want to tell you is, after three years of me saying, the Bible's not about you. After three years of me saying, you're not David. If you're asking this question, and you've asked that question, it's about time. It's about time we recognize that the Bible is not about us. But there's a danger in that, right? We think, well, if the Bible is not about me, then why should I read it? Who cares what the Bible has to say if it's not about me? And that's the perfect question for a 21st century, self-centered, narcissistic person to ask. It's perfect. The Bible's not about me, then why should I read it? But here's the reality. It's not that, honestly, bad of a question. Why do we read the Bible? We've talked about this before. Romans 15, 4, Paul wrote this. He said, Such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us. And the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So one of the reasons I read the Bible is to be taught and to receive hope and encouragement as I await the return of Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians, he wrote this. In chapter 10, verse 11, he wrote, These things happened as examples to us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So why should I read the Bible? It's it's an example. It's written down to warn me as someone who is alive at the end of the age. And then Jesus in John 5, 39, as if we need any other reason besides what Jesus would have to say. Jesus says, you search the scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you will find eternal life. But then Jesus says, but these scriptures actually point to me. 
So why should we read the Bible? Why should we care about what happens in Daniel's life or Esther's life or Ezra and Nehemiah's life or Jeremiah's life? Because these things point us to Jesus. So here's the thing. You're not Jeremiah. You're not Esther. You're not Daniel. You're not Ezra and Nehemiah. The Bible's not about you. But that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have something for you. Just because the Bible's not about you doesn't mean that it doesn't have something for you. But here's, here's the rub in that. It only has something for you if you utilize it. Right? A tool only has value when it's being used. I want you to imagine for a moment if we would go back to the beginning of June and I stood up here and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to be talking about the Babylonian exile. We're going to be talking about coming out of coronavirus. We're going to be talking about transitions in our lives. And I think it would be really helpful for you in the course of the next month if you would read the books of Jeremiah, Daniel, Esther, and Nehemiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah. You know, if you would have done that, and I pray that you did, you would have read five books of the Bible in the last four weeks. How incredible is that? To take in five entire books of the Bible. A pretty substantial section of the Old Testament, in fact. And here's the thing. We don't have time to cover every single word in this book. I so wish that, I so wish that we did. This past week, as, I, as I've studied through Ezra and Nehemiah, and I've, I've looked at other, other commentaries and other things, there are so many things in Ezra and Nehemiah that we just... We just can't cover. So we're going to come back at some point. I don't know when, but we're going to come back to Ezra and Nehemiah because the story is fascinating. In fact, I'm not even through it, but I've been watching a four and a half hour long video on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Each time I get about 30 minutes in and then I have to shut it off so my brain can relax for a few minutes because there are so many things going on. In this text, and what I what I want to do today is just 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 share just the tip of the iceberg with you in what Ezra and Nehemiah, what we can learn from Ezra and Nehemiah, the example that we can learn, the hope and the encouragement that we can find in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah today. So what I want you to know is originally they were one book, and it was surprisingly called Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's about the people who are coming out of exile from Babylon, and they're returning back to Jerusalem. So let's read just a few verses. This is Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy that he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what, the, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, hello, Felicity. Wherever this, Jew, this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So let's just talk for a moment 
Like, let's pause. Like, we just sang this song that, that says that we want to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, go on to all generations. To our children and their children and their children. And if you're a parent, isn't that your hope? That the generations that come after you would fall in love with Jesus? So, we love kids here at Westway Christian Church. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. So one of the questions that that this text in Ezra ought to force us to ask is, well, what's the prophecy that the Lord had given to Jeremiah? So what does that mean? It's, It's in the very first sentence. In the first year of King Cyrus, the Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. Well, what, what was that prophecy? Well, it was simple. Jeremiah had warned God's people that because of their worship of false gods, it was leading to injustice in the land of Judah. And this injustice was, was revealed in lots of ways. But primarily, this injustice was, real, was revealed through the way, they, the way they treated widows, orphans, and the alien, the immigrants in their society. That's how primarily this injustice was manifested. So, so because they ignored those people, and this is going to matter here a little bit later in Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's why there is so much to this, and the more I just keep talking, the longer this is going to go, so I'm going to just read my notes. The ways they were ignoring the widows, orphans, and immigrants, see, God was then going to judge them by allowing the Babylonians to come in and take them captive. But in the midst of these prophecies, and this is is why if you would have read Jeremiah, and I so so hope that you did, if you would have read, read Jeremiah, you would have seen hope. You would have seen four things. The hope for a return, the hope for a rebuilding, the hope for the gathering of nations, the regathering of nations, in fact, in Jerusalem. And you would have seen the hope that the Messiah was going to come. In this four and a half hour long video I'm watching, uh, Tim Mackey, who's, who's presenting the content, he says that these four things are a prophetic package. So in this return, as the people are thinking about their return back to Jerusalem, they have in mind this prophetic package. These four things are going to happen. They're going to return, rebuild, the nations are going to gather, and then the Messiah is going to come. Ezra and Nehemiah is divided into five sections. We're only going to talk about three today. And each one of these sections has the exact same flow. And it's this. A Persian king sends someone to Jerusalem. They meet with opposition. They overcome this opposition, but in a very anticlimactic way. So in this first section, in Ezra chapter 1 to 6, we're, we're reading about this King Cyrus sending people back to Jerusalem to rebuild something. They are there to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel is the person who's actually sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. This is important because, because spiritual practices are the foundation for a new normal. 
Spiritual practices are a foundation for a new normal. And they build the altar and they lay the foundation of the temple and they collect offerings and they begin burning sacrifices and doing all of these things. And when the foundation is completed, it's a day of mixed emotions. You can read about this in the text. It says, while some people were, were understandably very excited about the altar being rebuilt and, and the temple foundation... Those are the younger people. They would have been excited about this. There was another group of people who are people that were older that remembered the original temple. And as they saw this being built, they knew that this new temple was not going to have the magnificence of the original temple. So the text says that they wept. And one of the things that wasn't going to be in this new temple, and we talked about this a few years ago when we talked about the book of Hebrews, one of the things that's not going to be in this newly rebuilt temple is the Ark of the Covenant, which really, which really matters because in, prior to this, in the original tabernacle and the original temple, when the Ark was present, that's where God was. When God would manifest himself to the people, He was always behind that most inner place. So there's no ark. And the people had always understood that, that when the temple was rebuilt, this is part of that prophetic package, when the temple gets rebuilt, what they think is going to happen, because because this is what Jeremiah told them, we're going to rebuild the temple, and then God is going to come, and all the nations are going to gather together, and the Messiah is going going to come and save us. And the reality of it was, That didn't happen. There was no manifestation and there was opposition. The people of the land want to help them build the temple, want to help them rebuild it. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders, they refused their help. And maybe this would be a good place for us to pause and ask a question. Why didn't they want their help? Wasn't wasn't the regathering of nations in Jerusalem, part of the prophetic package? Wasn't someone else wanting to come in and give assistance, people of other nations? Because what happened is, is actually there are multiple exiles that took place. The Assyrians came in before the Babylonians. And it was the practice of the Assyrians when they would come in and they would, they would take over a land. They would actually import people from other nations into that. So when the Assyrians took over Jerusalem, they brought people from all of these other nations into Jerusalem. And those are the people that stayed. And if, you're, if you know much about the New Testament, you know that um, the Jewish people in the New Testament did not like the Samaritans at all. Well, the Samaritans were people who intermarried and inbred with those people from other nations. So, like, for some of you who know little bits and pieces of the Bible, like, this all ought to be coming together for us right now. And this story is so fascinating because they have these people from all of these other nations who want to help them. And what do they say? No. And after a little bit of political intrigue, and this is, the, this is the overcoming the challenge and the anticlimax, after a little bit of political intrigue and letters going back and forth to Persia, the temple's completed, Passover is celebrated, and there's no manifestation of God. There's no cloud, there's no fire. It just is a building doesn't mean it was without purpose, but it just means it was an anti-climax. 
So about 60 years later, Ezra himself is sent to Jerusalem with with the goal of spiritual and societal renewal. Ezra is determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach the decrees and the regulations to the people of Israel. So so not only do we have a, a renewal of the temple and the altar itself, but now we have a societal renewal. We have a religious renewal of the text. This is Ezra chapter 7, verse 21. I, Artaxerxes the king, hereby send this decree to all the treasurers in the province west of the Euphrates River. You are to give Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law of the God of heaven whatever he requests of you. Let's skip down a few verses to 25. And you, Ezra, are to use the wisdom your God has given you to appoint the magistrates and judges who know your God's laws to govern all the people in the province west of the Euphrates River. Teach the law to anyone who does not know it. Anyone who refuses to obey the law of your God and the law of the king will be punished immediately, either by death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. So here we see this Ezra is sent by a Persian King. And this is where Ezra and Nehemiah flow together. If we were to flip ahead, we're not going to right now, but if we were go, to go to Nehemiah chapter 8, we would see what Ezra says. He spoke for hours, multiple times, and the people there listened. And all of this exposure to God's law, all of this teaching that Ezra did in his role as priest in religious renewal and societal renewal, It revealed their sin. And this is the opposition that's found in this text. See, while while they had been offering all of these sacrifices and had been doing all of the things in the temple that they were supposed to be doing, they were also running rampant with sin. They had intermarried. And they were worshiping all of the false gods of the people that the Assyrians had brought in to Jerusalem years ago. And what Ezra does next, and as I've been reading this text over the past few weeks, what Ezra does next is really strange. He, they call together the leaders of Jerusalem and they say, hey, all of these people have intermarried. So, so what we need to do is we need to tell them to divorce and to cast out their children. And I wonder how you would respond to this. See, this only happens, I think, when we, when we really read the text and we pay attention to what's going on here. One of the things that's noticeably absent in this little interaction between Ezra and the leaders of Jerusalem and all of these people who have intermarried, one of the things that's missing in this little interaction is any direction from God to do that. It kind of sounds like, to me, that because they know that 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 this intermarriage and this idolatry had caused them problems in the past and they didn't want to relive that. It's going to make them a little bit moralistic, right? It's going to make them a little bit legalistic in the way they deal with things. But I feel this tension because, because telling people to divorce and abandon children doesn't sound like God's kingdom to me. Especially when I remember... What were the reasons? How did the the injustice manifest itself? Their treatment of the widows and orphans and the immigrant. Are you starting to see this flow? Are you catching this flow throughout this text? What's going on here? 
This is also an anticlimactic overcoming of opposition. Because they, they do all of these things and they think they're doing what God wants them to. And the question that we have to ask is, is it? And when we flip the page from Ezra into the book of Nehemiah, we read a Persian king sends Nehemiah. And this is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Excuse me, chapter 2, 7 and 8. I also said to the king, this is Nehemiah to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through the territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. So they've rebuilt the altar, rebuilt the temple. They've been sharing religious, they've been creating religious renewal by the reading of the Torah, supposedly leading to societal renewal. And now they're going to do another thing, which is create safety and security through strong walls. They face opposition. So Nehemiah tells them, tells them to do their work with one hand and carry a sword in the other. And I'm skipping over so much of this, and I so want you to dig into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But there's also other obstruction and other opposition that they're facing. It turns out that the, that the people have to borrow money from one another because they're so poor. And if that's not enough, when they can't pay back, what they have to do is they have to sell their own children into slavery of other Jews, of other Israelites. And there are other Israelites that are actually taking children from their brothers and sisters to pay for their debt. They had to mortgage their own vineyards, mortgage their own houses. And again, I just have to ask the question, does this sound like God's desire for his people? To do these things to one another? See, strong exterior walls don't do anything to defend against moral decay. Strong exterior walls don't fix what's wrong with the human heart. And we've talked a lot about that over the last three months, so you can probably see where this is going in this text. They end these practices... And there seems to be a restoration of judgment and justice in the land, a movement towards God. But let's listen to Nehemiah 7, verses 1 to 3. When I read this the other day, this was startling. After the wall was finished and I'd set up the, get, the doors and the gates, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed, I gave them the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother Hanai, along with Hananiah, the commander of the forces, for he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, listen to this. Do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day. And even while the gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut and bar the doors. Appoint the residents of Jerusalem to act as guards, everyone on a regular watch. Some will serve at sentry posts and some in front of their own homes. 
Remember this prophetic package. Return. Rebuild. Gather the nations and the Messiah will come. If that's the case, why are we closing gates? Anyone else sensing any tension in this text? Why are we closing gates at the hottest part of the day? Why are we arming our citizenry to guard against these people? And again, we have this anticlimactic ending, this resolution that's not really a resolution. The wall's completed, the priests begin their work. So the return to normal is complete, right? This is their new normal. They wanted to be exactly like they were before they went into exile. And here's the thing. They were. They were exactly like they were before they went into exile. Flip over to Nehemiah 13. This one's going to be a little lengthy. The chapter, not the sermon. On that same day, as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said, No Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. For they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them through, through our God, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. When this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. Before this has happened, Eliashib, the priest who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God and who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storeroom and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as for the offerings for the priests. So here's this room that has a very specific purpose within the temple, and we're going to give it to somebody. I was not at Jerusalem for the time because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked his permission to return. When I returned back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified, and I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings, and the frankincense. Do you see how this is an anticlimactic return? I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. So they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to work in their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah bringing, began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the temple storerooms. I also assigned supervisors for the storerooms, Shelmiah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah, one of the Levites. And I appointed Hanan, son of Zachar, and grandson of Mattaniah as their assistant. These men had an excellent reputation. It was their job to make an honest distribution to their fellow Levites. Remember this good deed, O oh my God, and do not forget all that I have done to faith, faithfully done for the temple of my God and its services. In those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. 
So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men were from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem, were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this way? I asked, wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us and our city? Now you're bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated this way. Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening and not be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard so the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and the tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I spoke sharply to them and said, what are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Remember this good, e- good deed also, O oh my God, have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. So, if you're following along, the temple's been desecrated. The societal laws and religious rules have been desecrated. About the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of that land. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin, I demanded? There was no king from any nation who who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? One of the priests of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sanballat the Horonite, so I banished him from my presence. Remember them, O my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and Levites. So I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making certain that each knew his own work. I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper times. Remember this in my favor, O God. What in the world is going on? Why is this book in the Bible? What an what a anticlimactic ending. Something that started off so well. We're going to return home. We're going to do what's right, and the people fail. Last week when we were in staff meeting, one of our elders, uh, who is our building manager, Jim, said, um, he asked me this question. He said, John, how are you going to close out this series? Is this going to be encouraging? Is it going to be cautionary? And so, Jim, here's my word. I'm not sure where you are in here. Um, Jim, here's the word that I came up with. And cautionary. Or maybe caucouraging. Why are these books in the Bible? Here's, here's what we've seen throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. The people return home intent on captioning what they thought were the glory days of their faith. And each time they faced opposition and they overcame it 
only to be disappointed when they were successful. The temple's rebuilt, only God doesn't show up in the way that they thought he would. They tried to follow the Torah and treat each other well, but they forgot that they were supposed to be a city on a hill that people would look at and want to be a part of and come. And they built a wall and they locked the gates to keep people out. In essence, they had achieved every single thing that they sought to do externally. But they were just as lost and broken spiritually as they were before the exile. One of the questions that we have to ask right now for us is, how are you doing right now in the new normal? As, as we went into our own quarantine three and a half months ago, and you thought you can't wait to get back You can't wait to come back and return to this building. My question is, how's your experience with that? We're three three weeks into regathering at Westway Christian Church, and we have the form and the function of the building. We're doing our 1015. We're doing these things, and there are some people who are wearing masks. We're sitting apart from one another. We can't hug one another. We can't touch one another. There's no Sunday school. There's no hugs. Is this the regathering that you thought you were going to get? Simply by coming to a physical space. The safety and security that many of us have found pre-coronavirus in our jobs. Our jobs are starting to come back and many of us are back in the rhythm of of pre-COVID work space. How are you doing? How's your heart in this? Isn't the new normal just as much as a bummer as the old normal? In fact, isn't the new normal more of a bummer than the old old normal in some ways? I want to go back to Jeremiah 29.11. We read this a few weeks ago. It's our little coffee cup verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. What does prosperity look like to God? How would God define what he is offering to us? Well, it's in the next few verses. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again into your own land. See, these are the things that, pros- that look like prosperity to God. Being found when we call upon him. This book, Ezra and Nehemiah, is about a people who do everything they can, even with right motives, to live up to God's expectations for their lives, only to fall short every time. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah is about. People who are doing all of the right things, even out of the right motives, but to fall short every time. And the reason why is simple. And if they would have just listened to Jeremiah, instead of throwing him down into a well, if they would have listened to Jeremiah instead of throwing his writings into a fire, they would have heard this. The day's coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. 
This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them like a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I'll put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. See, what the people in Jerusalem at the time of the return were missing was was they didn't have God on their heart. They had all of the trappings of religiosity. They had all of the trappings of the faith. But they didn't have changed hearts. And my hope for you today, for someone today, maybe, maybe here with us or watching online, my hope for someone today is that you're going to hear this and you're going to say, what do I have to do? Because I want a new heart. Because, because what I currently have going on, no matter how well I, I put together in my life, no matter how good my life looks like from the outside, I'm missing something. And that is a new heart. And what I would love for you to do is to cast aside your religiosity, to cast aside your comfort. And this is what I wrote. Just settle for what God has for you. Just settle for what God has for you. Which is not settling and is immensely better for you than how you are currently pursuing satisfaction in your life. Will you just settle for Jesus today? Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that we have your word. We are thankful that we can, we can turn to it. And, and as we talked a few months ago when we were going through 2 Timothy, there's, there's not a page in your word that does not reveal you. There's not a page in your word that's not inspired, that's not been given to us for a reason. God, I pray that, that we would not be like the people in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, but that we would seek you with our hearts. We would pray and you would hear us. We would call out to you and you would respond. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather today, to hear your word, and to enter into the new normal through our transitions in ways that honor and glorify you. And ultimately, that comes from a new heart. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So I want you to notice that one of the things that the, that the, that the Jewish people did after they built the ark or art, altar, excuse me, built the altar, rebuilt the temple, was they celebrated the Passover. That was a pretty important holiday for the Jewish people. A very important thing. We read in the New Testament that Jesus reenacts the Passover. This is in Matthew chapter 26. Starting at verse 17. On the first day of the festival on leavened bread, the disciples came to see Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? 
tells him to go into a city and see a certain man. The teacher, tell him, the teacher's come, my time has come, I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did just as Jesus told them and prepare the Passover meal for them. So they were reenacting the Passover. Because the Passover was a reminder that the people had been delivered out of Egypt from their bondage from the Egyptians. That's what the Passover was. So they celebrated that when the temple was rebuilt because they wanted to remember what God had done for them in delivering them. And what Jesus is doing here in this text is he is He's giving us, he's instituting for us a way to do the same thing. He's giving us an opportunity to reenact the same thing, the Passover. But what Jesus is doing is he's giving it a new meaning. He's giving it a new purpose. Verse 26, he says, As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. So when we... When we eat this piece of bread, this, this wafer, this is, not, this is not an idle thing that we do. This is not a meaningless, purposeless thing. We are commemorating what Jesus has done for us. Not just the freedom from physical slavery, but freedom and deliverance from our sin. So take it and eat it. It is Christ's body. And then it says, He took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. So when we drink this juice, we are remembering that Christ's blood has been poured out for us. Just like the bread is not idle, this is not idle. This is not an empty thing. Christ's blood was literally poured out for us to have that hope that we were talking about. So when we do this, we remember him. pray. God, again, we're thankful for, we're thankful for ways to commemorate. We're thankful for ways that we have that we can interact with you. And this is, communion is an interaction. It is not one-sided. It is an interaction with you. It puts us in relationship with you. It joins us together, not just as people who are in this room or maybe people who are watching this from home. It joins us together as churches all over the world. And it joins us together with the apostles sitting in a room with your son, Jesus. Help us to be faithful in that reenactment. It's in your son's name. Amen. Last thing I just want to share with you today, um, we would love for you to be generous in your giving. And that's not just finances, but it's with your time and your talent as well. 
Um, we know that there are, there are challenges right now with the way we gather and, and the things we're doing and not doing. So I would encourage you as you're, as you're living in this, in this space right now, maybe you want to get involved and engaged in the things that Westway Christian Church is doing. Um, over the next several weeks, we're going to be sharing with you some ways that you can get involved in, in doing things that you haven't been involved in and haven't been able to get connected with in the past. So if you would be on the lookout for that, that would be great. If you, lo- if you want to give financially to us, um, we encourage you to do that. If you're part of our body, um, we encourage you to do that. If you're part of another church body, um, I want you to support the church body that you are a part of. Because like us, they are doing gospel things. So I'm so thankful that you are with us here today. Next week, we are beginning um, our summer series. It's going to go from July through August. We're going to be talking about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Three books. One of them only has five chapters in it. And 2nd and 3rd John are exactly one chapter long. I would encourage you over the next six days to read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And if you do that and you read Jeremiah and Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah, you'll have read seven books in a few months of the Bible. And how awesome would that be? So I would encourage you to read through those books um, this week. So thanks for being with us today. And thank you. One of the things that we've been doing over the last month um, is we do a little bit of a debrief of our message time. As I've said a little bit later on, you are not a hostage in this room. So if you, if you don't want to participate in what we're going to do, you are, you are free to go. No one's going to look down upon you or think badly of you in any way. Um, this has just been a fun way for us to engage one another in relationship to dig a little deeper into the text, learn more about one another. Um, These are the kind of things that we do during small group times here at Westway Christian Church. So so we're going to talk just for a couple minutes. Um, We'll put the first question up on the screen so um, you can see it, and it'll be bigger. So it says, When the foundation of the temple was set in place, the people experienced mixed emotions. As you come out of the exile of quarantine, what emotions have you experienced? So what, is this, what has this been like for you, this, this transition that you're in? Last week you guys were so talkative. So happy and excited to see things opening up. Anybody else? Thoughts, feelings, emotions that you've had over, over the past month or so as, as you're coming out of quarantine? Talk loud, Dwight.
Okay, so what, what Dwight said was having, having some trust issues. Especially, you know, if I, so if I watch the news, who, like who can, who can I listen to? Who do I trust in this, right? And we, and we all know that we, we've hear, we hear competing voices. And then what he said was, but at the same time, it's forced me and it's increased my trust in God because I know he is trustworthy. It's driven me to a place of deeper relationship with him. So some trust issues. Yes. Yeah, so so some disappointment. I like I remember early on, I want to say like March 29th. I saw these I saw these posts that people were making on Facebook. And the typical one was it was it was it was filmed in a church and it was someone who was doing somersaults down the middle of the aisle. And some of you posted that, right? And you're like this is what it's going to be like for me when I come back to church. How's that going for you? Right? Like, what an amazing, what an amazing transition in three months that we've had to, that we've had to wrestle with. That we've had to think about the way we interact with one another. What, what disappointment. And surely, surely many of us have felt that. We wanted to come back. We wanted to gather together. And it's just, it's just so much more difficult than what any of us even imagined for us. Life is so different. And then there are people, then there are people who, are, who are introverts for whom the previous three months were like a dream world. Right? I, you mean I don't have to see anyone? This is amazing for me. Womp, but then we come back. Right? I mean, imagine, how, imagine all of these different thoughts and feelings that are going through people. And these are the people that, that we, have, we have opportunity to, to pour the gospel into and to share Jesus with in our lives. Dave? Hmm. Right. 